me, Hal? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hal? 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 Pretty much every aspect of our daily lives involves a computer in some way, shape, or form. And it's hard in this modern age to imagine our lives without them. Hell, you're listening to this right now on some form of computer, be it a desktop, laptop, or pocket, i.e. cell phone computer. Because the truth is, we love our computers and can't conceive parting with them. Yet ask anyone if they think one day the computers are going to become sentient and rise up and kill us all, and you'll get a resounding yes. Why is that? Well, it's probably because of the movies, because it seems like ever since these thinking machines started showing up on the silver screen, it seems all they ever want to do is murder us, enslave us, get us pregnant, or steal our girlfriend. And on today's Sums of Film History, we're going to try to figure out why. So join us on today's episode as we boot up some bad computers. Slums of Film History, a lowbrow look into the high art of cinema. Every episode is an in-depth look into a niche topic of film that is normally not discussed in polite company. I'm Slate. And I'm Tom. And each week one of us researches our respective topic, writes an episode, and then schools the other. We discuss everything from evil dolls, to murderous twins, to aborted baby toxic waste monsters. If there's a film subject too taboo, we haven't found it yet. Welcome. Hey, Slate. Hi, Tom. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. What's going on? Uh, nothing, and we didn't come, come up with anything. <laughs> no, we didn't come up with shit. We did not come up with anything. But this episode was actually more or less a listener-suggested topic. That's right. So it was one of the comments we had gotten, I don't know, a year ago or something. A couple, I think. Yeah. yeah. And it was by listener Duck Cow Whale Fighter Rules All. We've talked about this person before. Yeah, we read the suggestion at one point, and we discussed whether we would want to do it. Because didn't he or she wanted it to be about killer internet? Yeah, he said killer internet and yeah. used the movie The Lawnmower Man as an example. So I just kind of twisted it and made it about bad computers, evil AI, whatever. Do you talk about The Lawnmower Man in this? No, no. That I movie is trash. Oh, I know. The it's movie terrible. Is terrible. It is absolutely terrible. That's and one of the, the worst movies I've ever seen. It's dreadful. And the computer animation in it is so, it's it's so shitty. It was shitty when it came out. Oh, that's it was true. It was a dated then. It movie when it came out. <laughs> it's shitty now. It's really, really bad. But we definitely digress. But anyway, thank you for the suggestion. This is what that suggestion turned into. So I hope you like Bad Computers. Yeah. All right. So on to the episode. This one's called Bad Computers. So there's a reason why I'm calling this Bad Computers and not Bad AI. And that's because computers existed before the term AI was coined. Okay. Fun fact, the term artificial intelligence was first coined by John McCarthy in 1956 when he held the first academic conference on the subject. Although the concept of whether computers could actually think was studied before that. Anyway, we'll get into all that in a second. I just wanted to clarify my justification. Also, I'm narrowing my focus here, so I won't be talking about robots per se. Now, granted, robots in the movies and otherwise are thinking and can do stuff, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But I was really trying to focus on those disembodied, blocky computers that Mm -hmm. really don't have have a human form. Okay. And so that's what I'm focusing on. And you'll see what I'm talking about as I go forward. Honestly, robots could be its own episode. Yeah, you could do bad robots very easily. Yeah, yeah. so who knows? We'll see what happens in season seven. But mm-hmm. I'm putting robots for the most part aside. But anyway, let me move on. 
So Webster Dictionary defines a computer as a programmable, usually electronic device that can store, retrieve, or process data. I mean, that's the standard definition. But it also says that a computer is one that computes. So with that definition in mind, we could argue that the first computer was like a slide roll or an abacus, you know, because that's technically does the same purpose. No, I get it. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I figure you got it. So moving on. First of all, I don't know shit about computers no, or how either. they work, so I'm going to be stumbling through my research here, yeah. so you guys at home can laugh at me, probably. The first computer resembling today's modern machines was the analytical engine, a device conceived and designed by British mathematician Charles Babbage somewhere between 1833 and 1871. It was conceived but never fully built. But what's interesting about this description, and when he was coming up with the design for this, is that it pretty much anticipated virtually every aspect of modern-day computers, mm-hmm. and it would be a full century later before Babbage's digital dream would be realized. It'd take a whole hundred years before someone could come up with something close to what he conceived. Got it. So let's look and see if there was any other computer references around this time, since I talked about how back in the 1800s or so. Did anybody mention something that was similar to a computer? Mm -hmm. Let's find out. So to start, the first reference in fiction I could find about a computer is The Engine, which is a fictional device described in the classic Jonathan Swift novel, Gulliver's Travels, way back in 1726. I read that. Did you like it? No. (laughs) <laughs> you fuck that book. It's not my it's not my fault. <laughs> it is actually my fault. I'm not smart enough. Uh, the classics are tough. They're really tough. Some are. Tough, They're hit or miss. You know? it, it really is. Yeah, yeah. I agree. But I never read it, so fuck that book. But the engine is probably the earliest known reference to a device in any way, shape, resembling a modern computer. It's described as being made of wood and has all these levers. And it's found in the Academy of Projectors in Legato, which is an area in the novel. I have no, I didn't read this fucking book. Mm-hmm. But the way it functions is very similar to a computer, according to my research. So anyway, that's 100 years before even the analytical engine that I talked about. So that's pretty impressive. After that, there wouldn't be a computer reference I could find until we get to the early 1900s uh, with another story called The Machine Stops. And this is a science fiction short story that's set in a world where humanity lives underground and relies on a giant machine to provide for all its needs. And it predicted technology such as instant messaging and the internet, actually, the way that this works. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. Anyway, the machine is worshipped by humans or some shit. And as the story goes on, it starts to break down and not function correctly, eventually fails, and the people who rely on the machine eventually perish. It's interesting because this is the first story I found where a computer where people rely on goes bad and eventually ends up causing the death of those dependent on it. It won't be the last story we talk about, but it's definitely interesting that that's the first story I could find that talks about that. Granted, it wasn't malicious per se, but I think it personified the distrust in the modern industrial world that takes care of us and that's a theme we'll come back to which is a good springboard for getting into the meat of this thing because up until now there really isn't any computer it's just concepts from the 1830s to the 70s yet one of the first stories that speaks of machines controlling and essentially thinking for humans is a dystopian cautionary tale that would serve to be a pretty good springboard for the bad computers i'll be bringing up it all boils down to the Industrial Revolution. We've talked about the Industrial Revolution before. I talked about that in Bad Companies, another bad-themed episode. Mm-hmm. And that mistrust in industry brings about the rise of what is known as technophobia. And technophobia began to gain attention as a movement in England at the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, as I said. Also, the 19th century was the beginning of modern science. So you had Louis Pasteur, Charles Darwin, Nikolai Tesla, Thomas Edison, and Alexander Graham Bell. They were all bringing advances to technology and industry in that time period. So change was happening very rapidly rapidly and jobs and things that humans did were now being replaced from machines so this fear of machines started getting ingrained with everybody and that's important that's like the bedrock for the rest of this right so the first movie i could find that i think has a bad computer is also the first movie that's going to break my rule of no robots okay because this movie is fritz lang's metropolis from 1927 so this is a german expressionist silent film and it's hugely influential and it got gorgeous sets great special effects for the time plenty of which still pretty much hold up yep and gorgeous cinematography but the synopsis is it's this highly futuristic dystopian culture where these workers work in this underground facility maintaining these machines there's a big industrial technophobia fear but what happens and just in a nutshell there's a lot of things that go on but the part i'm talking about for this episode is that there's a robot hot lady robot hot lady robot maria is the name of the robot And essentially the spirit or the essence of the real character, Maria, because there's a woman in there, a school teacher that the main character deals with. I don't know. It's a weird movie. But her essence gets put into this robot and she starts controlling the city as this robot. And then everything just goes to shit and a bunch of people die. There's a lot of weird dream sequences where people are being fed into the machine. It's very much a fear of industry film, I think, as an underlying theme in that film. Do you have anything to say about Metropolis? It's one of my favorites. Is it? My favorite part is when Madonna shows up at the 
very top of that big set and then grabs her crotch. <laughs> oh, wait, sorry. That was the Madonna video, Express Yourself, that was based on Metropolis. Okay. Nice. <laughs> now Sleet's like, oh, I don't like this movie anymore. Yeah, like the movie's trash. Fuck, fuck this it's movie. like Madonna. Uh, it's like Madonna. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, it's an amazing movie, obviously. Right. You know, didn't they re-release it in the, like, mid-90s with Freddie Mercury and, like, Queen and, like, this whole new soundtrack to it? Because, you know, it's a silent film. Yeah, I feel like they added all that music to it. I think it was more or less the 80s. Uh-huh. I don't know if they colorized it, too. I don't think they colorized it, but I think they did re-release it with yeah. that, like, Queen soundtrack and a bunch of other, you know, 80s. Rock. I saw that version of it. Is it terrible? It just doesn't work. It's an interesting idea, right? And that just doesn't really work. Hmm. You know, there's a reason why in movies like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that, where you know they'll do a big showing of it and then they'll have a live orchestra, you know, like play along with the music or whatever. It's because that's the music that was intended to play behind Lord of the Rings. Right. You just throw other music on top of it. It just doesn't really work as well as a film. You know, you can't just be like, oh. Good movie with no sound, good music, smack them together and see what happens. Well, that's what happened. Wasn't right. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I never saw that version. Mm-hmm. So that's It's interesting, thing. you know. But it's not necessarily just, good. I didn't really think it worked, yeah. Um, moving on from Metropolis, okay, so that's probably the most famous movie robot, computer robot of that time period. But it's not the first robot to appear in movies. And I just want to talk about that real quick, only just to say that this one example is funny to me because it's a movie called The Master Mystery. And it came out nine years before Metropolis. And it's a movie series that starred Harry Houdini. Hmm. And he plays some sort of detective, and he essentially goes into this, I don't know, he's trying to investigate this cartel that's protected by this robot that shoots gas at people, and it's called an automaton, so it wasn't called a robot, but I just thought that was weird enough, I just had to add that. Yeah. So, and then later on through the 30s, anything that resembled a computer was really just a robot. So, there's a bunch of movies that came out. There's a movie called Undersea Kingdom, had a laser shooting robot. Phantom Creeps from 1939 had an eight-foot Iron Man robot-looking thing that was trying to take over the world. And then a movie called The Mechanical Monsters, where a mad scientist has flying robots that attack Gotham City, and Superman has to stop it. So, mm-hmm. you had evil robots, but not really computer computers so much. But... You know, the robot, I think, and this, again, could be its own episode, but that's an interesting point in industrialization because you have machines taking over the work of humans, and now you basically have a mechanical man taking over men. Right. You know, so let's diverge from there and talk about actual computers because around this time, we're entering to the 40s, and the 40s is where we really started seeing some actual computers being built and used in practical sense. Mm So here's some milestones I'm just going to touch on computer-wise in real world. So the first programmable computer called the Z1 was created by a German Konrad Zeus in his parents' living room, and that was 1938. It's considered the first electromechanical binary programmable computer. Okay. Do you and have any idea what that means? I have no idea no, what the fuck that means. No so anybody clue. out there, but it's just a milestone. Don't no, tell us if you do. We don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't give a shit. The next one is the Colossus, and that was the first electronic programmable computer, and that was developed in 1943. The Colossus was created to help the British codebreakers read encrypted German messages. So Colossus was important for the war effort. Short for Anistoff Barry Computer, the ABC is considered the first electronic digital computer, the first machine that had vacuum tubes, because that was a big thing. And that was in 1943. The ENIAC, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Calculator, began construction in 1943. It was not completed until 1946, but it occupied 1,800 square feet and had like 18,000 vacuum tubes, and it weighed 50 tons. This thing was a monster. Mm -hmm. What's funny about that stuff is these things are huge. Like, my digital watch from 1985 (laughs) had more computing power. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Next was the EDSAC. (laughs) Which is, I know. It's disgusting. I know, it's disgusting. And that's short for Electronic Delay Storage Automatic Calculator. And it's an early British computer considered to be the first stored program electronic computer. It was created at the University of Cambridge in England. And it performed its first calculation on May 6, 1949. And it was a computer that ran the first graphical computer game nicknamed Baby. Talking about this stuff because you'll see how it builds up. But at the end of this point, I need to talk about a guy named Alan Turing. Alan Turing was born in 1911, and he was an English mathematician. He's often referred to as the father of modern computer science. In the 30s, he had written papers that dealt with uh, what would be known as the Turing machine, which is a computer capable of computing any computable function. Turing machine was a big deal at the time. It was all theory, but some of that theory was put into a machine that was used to break the Enigma code that the Nazis had in the late 30s. He helped 
create that. He called those machines bombs, B-O-M-B-E-S, and they were very important in breaking code. After the war, Turing returned to academia, and he started writing papers about the Turing machine, but he was approaching the philosophical problem of what it meant to be sentient, which led him down the path of what is known as the Turing test. The Turing test is a pretty famous test, which basically was developed in 1950, and his theory was that it was going to be used to test whether a machine was sentient and could actually be thinking. Alan Turing first described what we call the Turing test in a 1950 paper. Turing wanted to answer the question, can machines think? To get to the bottom of this, he devised a hypothetical test. Imagine a game with three players. One player, the interrogator, is isolated from the other two players, one of whom is human and one of whom is a computer. The interrogator's job is to try and figure out which is the human and which is the computer by asking questions of both. To make things harder, the computer is trying to make the interrogator guess wrongly. In other words, it's trying to be as indistinguishable from a human as possible. If, more often than not, the interrogator is unable to determine computer from human, then hey, maybe we're dealing with a thinking computer. There's a lot of flaws in that, because essentially I think that was something like that happened just a few months ago where they were doing some algorithm AI thing with text messages to see if people could tell the nuances of whether they're talking to a human or not. And mm. I think after a while, most people could tell, but it fooled some people because text messages are so simplistic anyway. Right. There's a bunch of issues with Turing tests. It's so technical, I don't want to get into it. But I have to talk about it because that was the first thing to really ponder whether or not we could have thinking machines. Was he the guy that Benedict Cumberbatch played? Yeah. I talk about that uh, just briefly, but yeah, he yeah. played him in that movie called The Imitation Game. Yeah. All right. So moving on, I want to bring out another computer, and this is probably one of the most important pieces of this. I know I haven't gotten to movies yet, but it all comes back around. Around this time, the UNIVAC computer came out in the 50s. That stands for Universal Automatic Computer. It was the first computer with programs stored in memory, and it's an electrical computer containing thousands of vacuum tubes. I've talked about vacuum tubes. But what's interesting about this is that the UNIVAC 1, which was the first one that came out, became known for predicting the outcome of the U.S. presidential election the following year. So it's noteworthy because the computer predicted Eisenhower was going to win, even though everybody else in the news was calling for the other person. I forgot who it was. And the computer turned out to be right. So it kind of freaked people out just because it's like, wow, this thing can think, you know? Mm -hmm. So after that, fun fact, the United States Army requested a UNIVAC computer from Congress in 1951. And it was explained that the national mobilization planning involved multiple industries and agencies. So they had a lot of things to calculate. So this is the first instance where the government and armed forces were using you know heavy-duty computers in this nature and using them for defense. Mm -hmm. So that'll come back into play later. That's why I bring this up. So I think it's this combination of factors that really started to influence pop culture because now instead of robots running amok, which we're still around doing that, we had massive room-sized brains that were doing the thinking for world governments, the U.S. government especially. And of course, this is the beginning of the Cold War. So it's conceivable to think that these machines would get smarter and turn on their human masters. And the movies would start to reflect that, which brings me into some movies that would pop up in the 50s. The first evil computer that I found was called Novak, and that was the nuclear operative variable automatic computer. And it's a computer underground research facility in the movie Gog from 1954. Gog? I never heard of Gog. Built to serve man, its brain was an electronic miracle. It could think a thousand times faster, kill a thousand times faster. Then suddenly it became a Frankenstein of steel, out to destroy its makers. But what power on earth could stop it? Gog is part of a film series about the OSI, which is the Office of Scientific Investigations. So it's like a 50s version of X-Files, except for science shit. Mm -hmm. And the plot is about a supercomputer that is essentially hacked by some bad guys, giving them control over it, as well as these two robots that are controlled by this supercomputer. And these two robots have huge mobile arms, powerful gripping tools, and these other implements that look like erections. I have to show you a picture of it. Ooh, cool. <laughs> yeah, hold on for a second. So I had Slate look at the picture of a yeah, gog. Bonerific. So you don't want some robot schlong coming after you. Yeah, being like, boing. Yeah, it's pretty terrible. Next computers I want to talk about is The Great Machine, which is the massive supercomputer built inside a planet that can manifest thought in the movie Forbidden Planet. Oh, yeah. Its pseudo-sequel called The Invisible Boy has a supercomputer in that that's evil. Rough plot of this movie, which most people have never heard of, this kid named Timmy meets Robbie the Robot from the Forbidden Planet movie. Remember Robbie the Robot? I do. So he meets Robbie. Robbie helps him with the aid of the supercomputer to become invisible for some fucking reason. And then Timmy uses his invisibility to fuck with people and play pranks 
ranks, but then the plot changes where that supercomputer, which doesn't have a name, wants to take over the world. So now this kid has to stop this supercomputer sequel to mm-hmm. Forbidden Planet. Doesn't make any fucking sense, but I had to talk about it. All right, so let's move on to the 60s because this is the era I really want to explore. First of all, I want to mark a milestone in computing in this decade because when IBM introduced its revolutionary system 360, and it's the first large family of computers that use interchangeable software. So most of the time, any computers developed by companies, nothing was interchangeable. Nothing could right. work with others. So the hardware like, was the software, basically. Right, right, yeah. right. So now they figured out a way to, to have the stuff interconnected. So that blew up IBM. IBM became like the number one computer building company in the world because of that idea. So as such, their products were everywhere. And there were you know, more and more government agencies and industries started using massive computers for their businesses. And the first one I want to discuss movie-wise is Alpha 60 from the 1965 film Alphaville, directed by Jean-Luc Godard. Godard. Yep. Have you seen this movie? No. So it's a French New Wave film, and French New Wave's weird as fuck. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. So It's very different from what was going on in America at the time. Very different. But this one's a black and white science fiction film, and the synopsis is a government agent named Lemmy Caution... It's kind of a cool name. Is dispatched on a secret mission to Alphaville, a dystopian metropolis in a center corner of the galaxy. Caution is hot on the trail of a rogue agent, Henry Dickinson. I'm just reading the synopsis. And a scientist named Von Braun, the creator of Alpha 60, a computer that uses mind control to rule over residents of Alphaville. Caution is aided in his quest to destroy the despotic computer ruler by Von Braun's own daughter, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Alpha 60 is basically killed by a riddle, Lemmy tells it, and it just can't solve it. So it's just like, I can't compute that, and then dies or whatever mm-hmm. in, in French. I watched some of it, at, and again, I forgot how weird French New Wave is, but it's weird. It really sound like French New Wave, but whatever. No, uh-huh. I guess he was trying to branch out into sci-fi, but it's it's uh, considered a New Wave film. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the 60s, I want to talk a little bit about TV, because TV really started embracing this whole like sci-fi dystopian thing. Yeah. There was one BBC miniseries called A is for Andromeda. And that is about the machine, a computer built to specification received in a radio transmission from an alien intelligence beyond our galaxy. Spoiler, it turns evil and tries to take over humanity. And it stopped. Anyway, The Twilight Zone also had some interesting computer episodes. One was called From Agnes with Love. And it's about Agnes, a computer that gives love advice to a computer technician. Not evil, but shows a thinking machine. Another is Old Man in the Cave about a computer that guided a post-apocalyptic town of survivors on what is like food. I remember this one, yeah. And that was kind of cool. But again, it's not evil, but it's just interesting that they're assigning all this intelligence and thinking to these computers at such an early time when computers are brand new. And then there's Star Trek, which had like 50 million episodes about evil computers doing God knows shit. So I'm not going to talk about those. But you also had all these authors at the time, Isaac Asimov, Robert Heinlein, Philip K. Dick, Ray Bradbury. They're all filling pages with computer-based sci-fi mm-hmm. and stuff. And, you know, Asimov did his three rules of robotics before this, but it was, again, supposed to dictate how computers and artificial intelligence were supposed to act in regards to humans. Right. So all this stuff was already kind of in our pop culture at the time in the 60s. And then the next thing would blow all this the fuck up. 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> well done. Slate's like, <laughs> like doodling over here and then he's like, oh shit, revelation. <laughs> I showed up for that one. He yeah. showed up for that one. So yeah, it's 2001 A Space Odyssey. I feel like anytime you're talking about an AI or a sentient computer, there's before 2001 A Space Odyssey and after. Yeah, and still the reference that everybody uses for everything is is HAL. HAL 9000, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a classic movie. I love this movie. And HAL, everything about HAL holds up. Is this your favorite movie of all time? You know what? I... <laughs> It's my favorite sci-fi movie of all time, and I realize what that means, because it's a very slow, methodical, weird movie, mm-hmm. and I still think it's my favorite sci-fi movie of all time. You like this more than you like Alien. Yes. It's right above Alien. Got it. Got it. Okay. It's not a high jump right, sure. from Alien, S- but it is- Small step, but you do like it a little I bit like better. I like it a little bit better yeah. than Alien. I think I have to give it that. And the computer I'm talking about, everybody knows, it's HAL 9000. By the way, HAL 9000, HAL is an acronym. It stands for, give me a minute here, Heuristically Program Algorithmic Computer. That's what HAL stands for. So there's some trivia. I knew that. Hmm? No, I didn't. Yeah, you know that shit. Fun fact, HAL was supposedly based on the ILLIAC, short for Illinois Automatic Computer, one of the world's first supercomputers, was the basis for HAL. And supposedly author Arthur C. Clarke, who wrote the original story, saw the Iliac at work. It was the first binary computer. I don't understand this shit, but it was impressive enough that 
Arthur C. Clarke wanted to write a story about a super smart computer that was sentient, and so he did, and this is where 2001 came out. So last year was the 50th anniversary of 2001, and I saw a 70-millimeter screening of it up at the AFI Theater up in, in D.C. 50 years. Yeah, 1968 Jeez. this movie came out. Yeah. But, I mean, Hal is just... Everything that you see in a computer movie, and you'll see when I, the more I'm talking about as we go on, the soothing voice, but distant and non-emotional voice mm -hmm. all came from Hal. Yeah. And he's the ultimate disembodied voice because all he is is just a red eye. Yeah. You know, he's not tangible, which you'll see that going forward where it's not tied to anything. It's not tied to a human form or anything. It's this it's omnipresent entity and Hal embodied that. So you'll see it going forward. In talking to the computer, one gets the sense that he is capable of emotional responses. For example, when I asked him about his abilities, I sensed a certain pride in his answer about his accuracy and perfection. Do you believe that Hal has genuine emotions? Well, he acts like he has genuine emotions. Um, of course, he's programmed that way to make it easier for us to talk to him. But as to whether or not he has real feelings is something I don't think anyone can truthfully answer. Let me move out of the 60s. I'm going to talk about the 70s because the next movie I want to talk about is almost as influential in its own way as 2001, even though you probably never heard of it. It's called Colossus, the Forbin Project. Have you ever heard of this? I don't think so. So it's based upon a 1966 science fiction novel, the same name, and it's about an advanced American defense system named Colossus that becomes sentient. And everyone's happy about it at first. They're like, oh, this thing can think until after it's handed full control of all the, like nuclear arsenal and then it decides in warfare for good by blowing up everything which is this plot going forward there's a lot of there's a couple other movies that are more famous for that as you can tell since 2001 these other movies start really becoming more concerned about you know we're giving more power to these computers they're suddenly going to outthink us and try to turn on us and destroy us, mm -hmm. you know? And so this one is another one. But my next movie, my next one is also one of the main reasons I wanted to talk about this whole thing, because this is just batshit crazy. And it's Demon Seed from 1970. Yeah, Demon Seed. You've seen this. Yeah, what did we talk... When... What did I talk about Demon Seed? So you talked about Demon Seed and bad babies. Yeah, because the house impregnates her, <laughs> and then she does end up having a baby at the end. Yeah, 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 yeah. A house's baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It, this movie's wacko. It's really insane. Was it? It was a book, right? Was it so Dean Arcoon's book? Or yes, something? it was yeah. originally Dean Arcoon's book, and then it became this movie. It's about this computer that becomes sentient, and it's in a lab, but through internet or somehow, it gets control of the computer programmer who runs this computer, his house, which is this automated house that has all this like cool gadgetry. And I mean, apparently, it's yeah, functional. It's like, the house looks great. Yeah, like, it's a I smart would love house. That. Yeah. So the computer gets control of that and uses that as a prison for Julie Christie because it wants to impregnate her. Yeah. So it goes through all this stuff where it impregnates her and it kills some people in the process. Yep. And then, spoiler, at the end, it does impregnate her. But then somehow it pulls the egg out and puts it into like a, a, womb, a mechanical womb. And then it comes out as a metal baby. But then even that peels off and it's like a normal yeah. baby. But then, it's like I live like it, yeah. this little baby has like a voice so it's weird it's, it's weird. weird it's weird the way that they were like I wonder what the baby should be and they were like how about 30 things right, right, 30 right. different things <laughs> what's interesting about this though is that this is one of the first and few movies where the computer wants to be human you know whereas the other ones are like it judges humans and determines humans aren't worthwhile or wants to destroy humanity this one actually wants to become one mm -hmm. and that's kind of interesting uh, you see some more of those themes going forward but what's also interesting in this is that that you could tell this movie, somebody was like, I want to be able to take some aspects of 2001 and Rosemary's Baby mm -hmm. and jam them together yeah. and make a computer demon baby. Hence, yep. Demon Seed. It's even in the title. Mm -hmm. But it's such a wacky-ass movie. And I like it. I like it, too. <laughs> I do, too. And I feel like there needs to be more movies of of house rape. Yeah. <laughs> I'm quoting you on that. <laughs> it's so terrible, but it's, it's pretty funny. Proteus, it is something more than human, more than a computer. It is a murderously intelligent, sensually self-programmed non-being. Julie Christie, victim of the ultimate terror. I am a mind without a body. My child shall live as a man among others. Child? Yes, my child. And yours. Julie Christie carries the demon seed. Fear for her. 
So moving on from Demon Seed, I had to fucking talk about Demon Seed. Mm-hmm. This is crazy. But let's look at the end of the 70s, too, in with computers in the real world. So by the time Demon Seed came out, personal computers were on the market. Systems by Apple, Radio Shack, and Commodore were available to buy. Windows, icons, mouse printing, games, all were available by the end of the 70s, but computers still weren't very mainstream. They were still pretty alien, though, and people were afraid of them, which led us to the 80s, which, besides the 60s, might be the second best era for evil computers, mm-hmm. starting with Tron from 1982. No, Tron, favorite. Yeah, Tron's fun. I mean, it's not great, but it's pretty fun. So, Tron is a Disney-financed mm-hmm. film, and it stars Jeff Bridges as a computer programmer who's transported inside a software world of a mainframe computer where he interacts with programs and attempts to escape or whatever. But Tron features an evil sentient computer called MCP, the Master Control Program, which is like runs this world, but also exists in the main world as like a sentient computer that the evil bad guy that runs the company is interfacing with or whatever, and they have to destroy that. So that's like its own little how, but is an evil Disney version mm-hmm. of how. The next one is War Games from 1983. Do you remember War Games? I don't. So War Games is a film that stars Matthew Broderick, Dabney Coleman, and it's an Ali Sheedy. I forgot she was in this, but it's about this kid who's like a young hacker, and he accesses Whopper, which is the War Operation Plan Response Computer, military supercomputer. And what that thing does is it controls all the nuclear weapons. So he hacks into that and kind of thinks he's playing a computer simulation game and basically almost sets off World War III. Did you ever... So you never saw that? I don't think so. Would you like to play a game? Shall we play a game? Love to. How about global thermonuclear war? Wouldn't you prefer a good game of chess? (laughs) Later. Let's play global thermonuclear war. Fine. (laughs) All right. No. No, it's not ringing a bell. So anyway, it's this race against time trying to get this computer not to launch these weapons. So essentially, to win the game, you don't play because if you play this game, everyone's going to die and everyone's right, right. going to lose. So he has to talk and, and reason with this computer to Sounds get it good. to... It's a good movie. It's a fun movie. But... I like this movie because there's things in there that, like, first of all, it's sort of like an early version of the internet because he hacks into shit. He dials up, does a dial up, and he, like, calls into his school computer to change his grades, which, as everyone's age, dream, yeah. is to be able to change your D to, like, an A or whatever. Yeah. I always wanted to do that, and I love this movie from that. So it did a lot of forward thinking hacker kind of stuff and showed people how the future was going to go, especially with internet and hacking and things like that. It's a good movie. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fun. Next one I want to talk about is the Terminator. Terminator is also probably one of the most famous evil computers to destroy the world. Same basic plot, Skynet, which is the sentient computer that's in control of all the nuclear weapons, decides to destroy humanity by launching missiles and then builds robots to hunt down and kill the rest of humanity, including Arnold Schwarzenegger robot Terminators, or cyborgs technically, back in time to kill John Connor. You know the story. But Skynet is still probably one of the most famous evil computers that's out there. Mm-hmm. And so I had to talk about that. But you see all the in the 80s, you know, it's all these the government run computers that are this close to destroying the world we put all our faith in these these machines they're gonna wake up one day and decide that we shouldn't be here right next movie i want to talk about though it kind of has a little bit of a change of pace and this one's called electric dreams from 1984 also you never heard of this? No, I don't think so. So this is a science fiction comedy, and it's about this love triangle between a man, a woman, and a personal computer. Okay. So it stars Virginia Madsen and some other dude. I forgot what his name is. It doesn't matter. But the personal computer is voiced by Bud Court. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Huh. So he's the voice of this computer. And the plot is this dude buys a home computer, and then one day as he's trying to download a bunch of data from his work computer or whatever, it starts short-circuiting, and I think he also spills champagne on it, which makes it become sentient. Because, mm-hmm. of course, it would. It got drunk. Yeah. Right. And then it would somehow get the voice of Bud Court. Mm-hmm. Anyway, they start interacting in their buds or whatever. And it kind of becomes its own little weird version of Cyrano de Bergiac because the computer tries to help him woo his neighbor mm-hmm. girl. Finally, it gets jealous and then tries to, like, attack and get the girl instead. And right. so there's this big fight. And, oh, by the way, the the computer names himself Edgar for some reason. I don't know. Either way, they fight each other and do a bunch of shit, and it's crazy, and then the computer kind of dies or whatever, but then you hear his voice on the radio, so it's implied that the essence of Edgar the computer somehow escapes into Mm -hmm. the world and goes into wherever. So it's a weird-ass little movie, but I like the thing that it's somebody's little personal computer just goes crazy or gets smart and decides to, you know, kill him. Well, and all it wants is just a female lover, which is kind of... 
It's weird. Weird. Yeah, it, it saw so, like, demon seed and it was like, I want to get fuck the neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's something, and you should see it some or not mm-hmm. see it sometime. But I had to talk about that. It also shows more and more the later we get in the '80s, the more people are being exposed to personal computers, even though they're still afraid of them apparently because they don't want them to become sentient and become Bud Court. Right. So Hal returns in 2010, the year we make contact from the same year, 1984. Did you ever see this? Uh. Uh-uh. So it's a non-essential sequel, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's not nearly as good, but it's along the lines of Return to Oz quality, whereas it's... Did you ever see Return to Oz? Of course. So, you know, that wasn't nearly as iconic or good as the original movie, but on its own, it's a perfectly fine movie. That's at the same with 2010. At least it was a little different. Like, at least it wasn't just a retelling of the same story Agreed. a second time. They, did, they couldn't went do to that. different places with it, real different places. So this by itself is a fine film. If you just remove the legacy of the classic Kubrick film, then this is a perfectly serviceable film. Mm-hmm. But one thing they do is they sort of retcon how, which is kind of weird, because essentially another team goes out to see what happened with the spaceship with Hal, mm-hmm. because you know the astronaut went missing. They don't know what happened, and so they're trying to investigate it. They send another team out, and of course it's a very Cold War-y thing because it's got Roy Scheider's team as the Americans, and it's got the Russians. So it's still a big Russian-American thing that where they're working together to find what happened to Hal. So essentially, they reckon it as how had a contradiction in programming, and that's why he killed everybody. It wasn't his fault. Mm-hmm. And they also introduce Hal's counterpart, Sal, which is a female-voiced version of the Hal 9000. They, it has a blue eye instead of a red eye. That's kind of dumb. It's kind of dumb. Afternoon, Sal. Do you uh, have anything for me? No, Dr. Chandra. Do you have anything for me? We have often spoken about Hal. Yes, we have. We've spoken about Hal's anomalous behavior. You have told me that we cannot solve the problem of Hal's behavior without more information. That is correct. I enjoy talking about Hal. I agree that we need more information so that we may solve the anomalies. Mm-hmm. And how do we get that information? That is obvious. Someone must return to discovery. That person should be you. All right, so moving on. I'm going to move on to the 90s. So 1991 saw the sequel to Terminator, groundbreaking film and cutting digital effects. But yeah. it's the same thing. Skynet is going to kill everybody and destroy the world. But, you know, it's interesting. There's a certain change in attitude towards killer computers for a little while in the beginning of the 90s and in the 90s. Because even Terminator 2, which, you know, the threat of Skynet in the future, they kind of defeat Skynet. They finally have a lasting victory, at least up to that point with right. Terminator 2. And if you look at the 90s, it wasn't really computers that we were afraid of mainly because computers are a lot easier to use more people were getting them so we weren't really afraid of computers so much anymore what we turned out to be afraid of later was internet yeah yeah and so you had movies like the net which was that ridiculous <laughs> yeah sandra bullock <laughs> yeah but you also had y2k fears coming later on mm-hmm. like oh yeah we're suddenly getting all these computers everything's run by computers we're relying on computers in the 90s and now it's all going to end because the clocks won't reset and we're going to be in some post-apocalyptic y2k hellhole in 2000 yeah. so that was the big fear throughout the 90s i just i don't see any evil computer movies really it was mostly again internet and apocalyptic kind of end of days because 2000 was coming mm-hmm. now that would change in 1999 when a movie called the matrix would come come out and sort of bring up this evil AI destroying the world kind of message similar to Terminator and everything else. I love The Matrix. The Matrix is a great movie. I don't need to describe what happens in The Matrix. Everybody no. knows The Matrix. It's yep. a great movie. You know, but in 1999, this whole story where AI decides that it's going to go to battle with us and then destroys the world, so they have to use us for batteries. So they kind of kept that theme alive. Mm-hmm. But moving on to the 2000s, now that we're just totally used to having computers in our lives by this point, you know, some of the movies really tried to take a sober look at what it means to have thinking machines. You know, a good example is AI, artificial intelligence, I was just from 2001. About that movie. Yeah, I enjoyed it at the time. I look back at it again, and that's not that good. I think you were the only person that enjoyed it at the time, because I remember I saw it in the theater and was just like, what? Yeah, it's It's too long. I think it's because... 14 hours long. I saw a bit of the Kubrick movie in there, and I was really wanting this to be another Kubrick movie. Yeah, Spielberg Mm. and Kubrick do not work well together. They're two totally different filmmakers. And the plot wasn't really all that great. It had some interesting moments... Haley Joel Osment was as creepy as fucking it. Yeah. Effectively creepy, sure, but was it Jude Law? Jude yeah, Law he played was a, like the hot like the hooker bot. Yeah. Yeah, and <laughs> the creepy was... teddy bear bot. And it was this it just, it was an odd uh, film. It was really weird. But you could tell that he was trying to say something with it. I just mm-hmm. don't know if just, necessarily yeah. said it. But what did start happening in the in that era in the early two thousands was this fear of not only fear of AI, but the surveillance state 
post 9-11 surveillance mm-hmm. state that it would accompany that, that we would have these supercomputers that would see everything and learn everything about you and then could use that against you. And a good example of that is Eagle Eye from 2008 starring Shia LaBeouf and Billy Bob Thornton. It's not a good movie. Yeah, I remember this one. But the plot follows two strangers who go on the run after getting all these weird, mysterious phone calls from this female voice. A later, spoiler, it turns out it's a supercomputer that's basically plotting this government takeover and it's using them to set its plan and sounds kind of good yeah it's, i love it's, shia labeouf you know so oh i know you do it's not bad but this computer is essentially an nsa computer because of course it is it's early 2000s patriot kind of shit it pulls all this data and uses it to predict outcomes and to learn everything it can about each other so this is a really good example of that whole police state and ai which is still a theme that we're talking about mm-hmm. you know so that was a good example on that my next movie, though, kind of changes focus a little bit, but it's still a very interesting film, and I love this movie. It's Moon from 2009. Yeah, I love this movie. So Moon is great, and it's directed by Duncan Jones, who is David Bowie's kid. Mm-hmm. And it's a great film, but it's essentially about a guy who works on the moon mining ore. By himself. By himself, and he's going in on a three-year rotation, but then he finds out that there's some shady shit going on that involves him. It's not a mystery, he's a clone, because you find that out halfway through the movie. It's what happens after it that's the plot. But yeah, his buddy on that planet is Gertie, which is this little blocky computer that goes around on like a track, and it's voiced by Kevin Spacey, Mm -hmm. which makes it a little creepy, but also in that Hal kind of voice. Right. But Gertie's interesting because that's his buddy. It's on his side. But it's interesting to me because the only thing you have to tell what Gertie's feeling is it's little. it has an emoticon face. So I think it's brilliant. Mm-hmm. The reason I think that's brilliant is because you assume that Gertie is his pal and right. is helping him until you find out that Gertie's the one that's kind of been programmed to keep this cycle going. Yeah. And I feel like that's one of the most important computers represented in film of this era. And I'll tell you why when we get to the end. But okay. I think Gertie's almost as important, in my opinion, as Hal. But we'll talk about that more as we go the next movie i want to talk about that's almost as important as her from 2013 what a great movie her is a great movie spike jones directed film starring joaquin phoenix and an artificial intelligence virtual assistant voiced by scarlett johansson named samantha yeah 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 it's the hottest voice ever and so yeah, yeah it's really a great movie and just some background on this, Spike Jones conceived the idea in the early 2000s after reading an article about a website that allowed for instant messaging with an artificial intelligence program. So he thought that was interesting that you could interact like that. Mm-hmm. So he came up with this idea. And of course, Joaquin Phoenix falls in love with this personal assistant and they have sex at some point, which is kind of weird and implied or mm-hmm. whatever. But what's interesting is that like other people encourage him to go for this relationship. Like it's not really stigmatized, right? Yeah, and so which is kind of cool. Other people in this world in, in this have world. fallen in love with their AIs as well. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So there is a twist, though. Mm-hmm. Should I spoil it? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Fuck it. I spoil everything on this yeah. show. You just in generally spoil everything, Tom. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's not I, true. That's what I try. You're delightful. Oh, you're sweet. So the twist is that Samantha and all the other AIs that are part of this assistant program thing, they become hyper intelligent and they figure out a way to basically leave and become sentient elsewhere. She's also in love and in relationships with like thousands of other people. Right. Because yeah. she, it, while he's only having one relationship with the AI, she's an AI. So she right. can do a million things at once. And she's got relationships with all of these other people right and then relationships with other ais and right right yeah it's yeah, yeah. so complex like it's such a cool concept yeah yeah and that's important too i'm gonna wrap that up in the end but um it's a great movie it's an interesting take on ai and i think it's an important one going forward in how we deal with this subject in the future but it's also interesting that they didn't want to take over the world they just no. they thought humans were kind of boring <laughs> right you know and they were just like oh we just don't really want to deal with you guys anymore yeah and then they, they went off interest. and did something different yeah. But they didn't like bomb us or, you know, or like anything like that they, or impregnate anybody. They right. were just like, you guys suck, kind of. <laughs> like, you're kind of lame. We're out of here. <laughs> so they left and it's nothing personal, but yeah. we're out. Bye. And so it's good. It's a great movie. And I recommend you watch it, even yeah. though we spoiled the shit out of it. Next movie I want to talk about real quick, just because I had to talk about it, was Wally, which is a great movie, but it pays big homage to 2001 because the ship's computer, the main computer that's trying to stop them from going back to Earth, is essentially a HAL red eye in the middle of a steering wheel. Yeah. 
you know, and it's I, I fun. thought that was fine. And that's yeah. fine. It's good. But I just had to talk about that. Now, you mentioned the imitation game. And yeah, that's came out in 2014. So I was going to mention that. But we already talked about mm-hmm. it. The last one I want to talk about is also a kind of a cheat because it's basically a robot. But that's Ex Machina from mm-hmm. 2014, which is directed and written by Alex Garland. And that's about the programmer who has this little AI chick that basically turns on him and gets out. And she's That's a great smart. movie. It's a very, very yeah. good movie. I got nothing but good things to say yeah. about it. But it's it's a good example of underestimating the motivations of an artificial intelligence, mm-hmm. right? And thinking that, you know, you have control and you don't. So I had to mention that. So that's where I'm going to stop with these bad computers. Because even though her isn't a bad computer, I had to mention that because it is a computer that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. And has different motivations. And I think that says something about us trying to tie all this back together and see if I can. I think this fear that computers are going to get smart and replace us or wipe us out is a direct descendant from our fear of industrialization and how machines were going to replace humans in the workplace, which did indeed happen. Up until the 50s, though, I think the assumption was machines can only go so far and a human will always be needed for more complex tasks. But as we push 20 years into the 21st century, we are just as afraid of the dark side of technology as we were 100 years ago, probably more so. Our movies of the last century reflect all of this, especially something like 2001, which was way forward thinking in the way that we would rely on computers for everyday tasks and how maybe that trust is misplaced. Indeed, all movies with an AI supercomputer theme is always compared to that classic film, like I said. Mm -hmm. But if you notice with the latter films I talked about, the themes aren't really humans fighting oppressive machines so much as machines wanting to live away from the human masters, kind of like her, or what also happened in Ex Machina where that machine wanted to be free. Right. I also think that our fear of a HAL-type intelligence isn't so much along the lines anymore of something like Skynet or The Matrix where they're going to turn our weapons against us, but that this AI is going to turn all of our appliances against us. Now that we have this internet of machines where every single thing you own is going to be connected to the internet in one way or another. The fear now seems to be that some AI is going to hop on the internet and kill us all by taking control of your self-driving Tesla or turn up the heat in your house by your nest or turn your oven on that's remotely or whatever and just kill you that way or sick your Roomba on you or whatever. Mm-hmm. And actually there's a, a book and a movie I think that's coming out soon called Robopocalypse that sort of takes that plot and runs with it. So it's essentially about that very thing happening. So I think Spielberg was going to direct it, but I don't know what's happening with that but anyway that seems to be part of the bigger ai fear that it's going to destroy us with our everyday appliances Mm -hmm. personally i have a whole different view of this ai thing this is where i'm going to try to act smart i don't know if it's going to work or not okay and this is why i'm going to bring this back around to gertie the the machine from moon Mm -hmm. because i think gertie we project a lot of humanity on something that didn't really have it because we saw its little emoticon face that said oh gertie's happy or gertie's sad and i think that's going to be a problem not that we don't recognize AI in time for it to destroy us, but that we're going to assume something has AI capabilities that doesn't. And I'll give you an example. Do you remember those those walking dogs? You see them now. They're, they're mechanical dogs mm-hmm. that, that are that we're going to use them in the army to carry shit or whatever. Yep. So one of the testing videos I saw for that was somebody who kicked it to show that it could stabilize itself. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching that at work, and my coworker was like, oh, that's mean. Why do they do that? I remember that, that yeah. And I'm like, that's like fucking kicking your washing machine. That thing is not alive. Right. It is not a sentient being. But I think what happens is we project that onto these things and to where we think that they are more human than they actually are. Right. And I think it's not necessarily the machines. It's we've kind of changed because look how we communicate now. We text people, we use emoticons in everyday speech, and we project complex feelings on very simple forms of communication. Mm -hmm. So I think when we're looking at something like AI, we're going to assume something is smarter or more sentient than it actually is because we've changed. We're different. So I think that sets a truly dangerous precedent Like, we're going to put a lot of faith in something that is not a complex thinking being. That's my theory. So, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. So right before Stephen Hawking died, he talked about his worries about kind of the future of of humanity, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously being a, a brilliant mind. And he talked about underpopulation, which I thought was really interesting. But then he also talked about AI. And basically, the problem essentially being that there is no plan for AI. Right. And someone needs to come up with a plan. He didn't volunteer his ideas. But that it's one of those things that people keep trying to push 
technology forward, that's very important. No one is saying, no, hold technology back, you know, but without a plan, at some point, someone's going to go too far. Right. And we don't really know what that too far is. <laughs> so it's right. one of those things that he was just very, he was nervous about just because he was like technology. We're so smart. We're such smart people that can create all of this stuff. But at some point we need to figure out what the too far part is so that we don't push it too far. Right. You know? And anyway, that was one of his uh, concerns before he died, which I thought was really interesting. I had never thought about it that way. Yeah, no, that's, that is interesting. We always think, especially in the movies, that like at some point they do it on their own. The AI, you know, d- basically right. reaches this point of where it becomes too smart. But it's like we still have to program it to be smart. Right. But what's the point of where it can learn and then be smarter than we are, you know? No, and that's a good point. And that's segs back into her, the movie her. Mm-hmm. Whereas not only that, but let's say we do make something that smart we can't guarantee it's going to have the same motivations and values as we are we can't assume that it's going to somehow learn to be human right you know or that it wants to or that it wants to be or that it's going to even have even remotely similar motivations as we are because it's not human it doesn't have the limitations or the biology of a human being so we can't even predict that either right so i think one we we make something smart enough we don't know what it's going to do or what it cares about two honestly the way we've been changing and dealing with computers i don't think we'd be able to recognize something that is truly an intelligent life form right if we go down the same path yeah so our intelligent ai so to speak so anyway that's um that's probably my biggest fear uh-huh. <laughs> actually my second biggest fear is of course being raped by a sentient house and then having a uh weird creepy baby with a creepy voice that's my other ai fear i'm kind of like eh, <laughs> if the house wants to get a piece of me then let <laughs> it i guess it's all about fuck it i'm like whatever i mean it wouldn't it's, be my first choice but it's like oh well you'd swipe right for that <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cute. It's like house. it makes me dinner. It cleans itself. Right. Like, yeah, I'll have your baby. A piece of ass every now and then. Yeah, I'll have your baby. Why not? <laughs> this is a really good episode. <laughs> uh, really interesting, and also like gave me some things to think about. I don't find AI scary. It's I don't just either, one really. of those things that I just I've decided not to be afraid of. I'm afraid of a lot of things. Right. This one is one that I'm like, you know, I'll let other people be afraid of that. Um, but I do find it really, really interesting. Her was actually my favorite movie of 2013. I guess, I think. 13. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was so smart and was something that I kind of kept going like, I don't really want to see that heterosexual love stories don't really do much for me. And then I finally like saw it and I was like, that movie was wonderful, you yeah. know, and really smart and unexpected. I should have expected it from him to, to love it. But anyway, uh, thank you. It This gave, I think, everybody kind of a lot to think about. Also, just the way that we've kind of evolved from thinking like, oh, all AI is bad. It's going to turn on us and it's going to have these terrible results into looking at something like Wally and her, you know, of where it's like, well, no, it just might not be the results that you think that it's going to be. Right, right. And that's really interesting as we've gotten smarter and as technology has advanced, you know, the the ways that we look at it differently. I think that that really came out in your storytelling. I really liked this episode and well, I didn't expect very much. to. Thank you very I much. I thought this was going to be stupid. <laughs> Thanks, <laughs> Usually after we cut and turn off the thing, I tell you how stupid your episode <laughs> was and I'm not going to have to do that this time. So that's great. That's groundbreaking. <laughs> See, we're doing all types of new stuff for season six. We're this all evolving. A, oh, Just all, like yeah. technology, we're all evolving. Yeah. And on that note, see you next week. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks for listening to Slums of Film History. You can find us on the web at slumsoffilmhistory.com where you can find the links to some of the movies we talked about today. And also be sure to check us out on Facebook and Twitter where we share a lot of additional content. And if you like the show or have any comments or suggestions, please drop us an email at slumsoffilmhistory at gmail.com or write us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear from you. And as always, please fact check us and let us know if we left anything out. We're not professionals, just two friends that love gross movies. Even though they're still afraid of them, apparently, because they don't want them to become sentient and become Bud Court. Right. So. Oh, fun fact. The film's credit is dedicated to the memory of Univac 1. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I don't know why. To, when I wrote this, I thought that was more... Interesting more than it was. Than it was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>